This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What's good, y'all? You're listening to Code Switch from NPR. I'm Gene Demby. All right, so boom. It's a couple years ago. I was in the house cleaning up and wasting time listening to podcasts, you know, as you do. And I got sucked into this story on This American Life. This story was called The Miseducation of Castlemont High. And it was about a bunch of high school students in Oakland going on a school field trip in 1994, which, okay, what's the story there? But that field trip went sideways, like real, real sideways, very quickly, like national scandal sideways. So in the story, you have about 70 or so students who all descend on the stately old movie theater. All these kids are black and Latino, but the other theater patrons, they were white and they were old. And the students can see the other patrons looking at them. Some of the other patrons were asking why they were there. Like, you know, the why are you here question I'm talking about, right? But it was when they got into the theater that everything went off the rails. Because the movie that those kids were there to see was Schindler's List. It's Hebrew from the Talmud. It says whoever saves one life saves the world entire. It had come out a few months earlier, but by then it was already probably like the most acclaimed, the most high-profile Hollywood movie about the Holocaust. Not that the kids from Castlemont High had been prepped by their teachers or by their chaperones about any of that. They walked into the theater. It was chaotic. The teacher had made arrangements ahead of time, but no one remembered him calling. So the 70 teenagers just sat where they could, a lot of them in the back. The four chaperones sat in the front. Four of them for 70 kids. That voice belongs to B.A. Parker. She was a film professor and then a producer of This American Life. But Parker tells this story of this train wreck, this mess of these kids who had not been appropriately briefed by their teachers about this heavy, artsy movie and what it was about. They didn't tell them that it was going to be three hours long, that it was going to be black and white. It was going to have subtitles. It was going to be long stretches of nobody talking. It was also going to be full of, like, sex and nudity. It was a very weird film to take a bunch of teenagers to without, you know, giving them the land to land first. And it's a film whose main plot which is as heavy as plots can get, right, doesn't actually kick in for a ways into the movie. So it's just, it's a recipe for boredom and mischief. And so all these Castlemont High kids were acting like kids. They were restless. They talked and horsed around with each other. Some went out to get drinks and popcorn. Others even snuck into other movies. House Party 3 was also playing that day. Those who stayed in the theater were shushed several times by the other patrons and also an usher and chaperone. When one of the moviegoers told them to be quiet, they reportedly bombarded him with popcorn. During one particularly harrowing scene in this movie, the kids start to laugh real loud at what they see as this woman on screen overacting. And it was just after her character, who was Jewish, had been shot by a Nazi. Like, are, are you cringing? Because I was cringing when I was listening to this story. And Parker was, like, ladling out the details. Like, okay, so you have these kids, but the thing that they didn't know was that a lot of the other people in this big theater 
watching that film with them were actual survivors of the Holocaust, and they were pissed. They went to the manager, and the audience clapped as these young brown kids were being escorted out of the building, and one of those white people allegedly told a Castlemont student to go back to Africa. (sighs) It was just, just a mess in every direction, and it became front page news. All these high school kids would become examples of, like, anti-Semitism. And Steven Spielberg, who directed this movie, would even, like, weigh in and get involved at some point. And Parker managed to track down a bunch of those kids who were, were all in their 40s at this point. And you know what? Look, like, I'm not trying to ruin the story for you. Uh, you should go listen to it. It's called The Miseducation of Castlemont High. We'll put the link on the Code Switch webpage. But I remember thinking when I was listening to this story... This is a wild-ass story about race and misunderstanding, and it has so many threads. It was just really, really chewy. And Parker, the person who was telling the story, was just, like, leaning into all the things that made the story really uncomfortable. And I was like, damn, I really wish this was a story on Code Switch. And I went on Twitter, and I found B.A. Parker, and I hit the follow button. So that was a lot of preamble, y'all, but I need to just set it all up. So you know that we've been looking for a long time for a new co-host. So today on the show, I want to introduce you to my new co-host. She's been a film professor and produced and reported for podcasts like Nancy and The Cut and NPR's Invisibilia. And as you just heard, This American Life. Her name is B.A. Parker. Can we get some walk-on music for B.A., y'all? Oh, boy. Well, life on the farm is kind of laid back. Ain't much of no country boy like me can't hack. It's early to rise, early Don't in the sun. Like Thank God I'm a country boy. Uh, hi, Parker. Hi, Jean. All right, you. You gotta explain explain the song to me, cause what? <laughs> no, no, you don't play me like that. Cause you asked me to think of a walk on song if I was like going up to a pitch, mm-hmm. and my the way my brain works, I immediately thought of "Thank God I'm a Country Boy," because that's the seventh inning stretch music for Orioles games. And you're from Baltimore. And I'm from Baltimore, so that is just where my mind went when you said pick a song. <laughs> And now this is where we are, and you're going to make me lose audience members before I even got them. No, no, they're not going to. This is a safe space. We are here to welcome you and affirm you. But I'm just, you know, John Denver as your chosen bard of Baltimore. That's not, I mean, we can we can flip it because, like, I mean, I am a Baltimore club kid. And so, you know, Rod Lee's Dance My Pain Away would have been my second choice. Dance my pain away. Because that is more, I mean, that does sound like a country song if you take away, like, the booty bass. But (laughs) if it's like, dance my pain away, I got problems. You know, like, I don't, this is not going well for me. (laughs) But you were born and raised, obviously, in Baltimore. You got the club music, you got the Orioles. You said B-more is the El Camino of cities. Like, what does that even mean? I mean, well, first of all, like, an El Camino is like a coupe that looks half car half pickup truck and it's <laughs> it doesn't really have it, it it defies definition and so when i think of baltimore it's like is it a car is it a truck is it the north is it the south and like the answer is just yes it's neither fish nor fowl it's like the anderson pock of cities it's like not a rapper not a singer it's all of those things fish and fowl exactly <laughs> so let's step back you were also importantly this is the purpose of the conversation the brand new host of code switch You've been covering culture and art for all these big places. So now you're about to be covering race. Like, what drew you to the race beat? I mean, 
I don't know. The race beat always sounds weird because like some people, their beat is education. Some people, their beat is politics. And I feel like mine is just about um, identity and survival. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it always um, attracted me just because I am, you know, a black woman in the world just trying to figure out why things are the way they are, especially for marginalized people. Mm-hmm. And so I guess that's what's always compelled me a- a- about it and being a part of this team full of other like like-minded, smart, talented, cool people just for like a perfect fit, you know? Oh, you just saying you just gassing up. I am, but it's true though. <laughs> All right, so now that you're here um and getting settled in, what are the stories you're most amped about telling on Code Switch? I mean, we've got a story coming up that I'm really excited about. It's about like the way that comedians talk about race. Mm-hmm. I feel like I've um, in this world no more racist jokes than thoughtful, nuanced jokes about race. Oh, for sure. For sure. For sure. And so we're talking to comedians of color who are talking about their racial experience with like these really nuanced, thoughtful jokes about race. You can't get a cold during the coronavirus because everyone thinks you've got the coronavirus, right? Getting a cold during the coronavirus is what it felt like being Muslim after September 11th. (laughs) It's what it felt like being white after January 6th. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, I'm interested in doing a story about our treatment of indigenous people when we're in a bind. Wait, can you say more about that? What do you mean? I mean, especially with the recent nullification of Roe v. Wade Mm -hmm. and how one of the solutions people are talking about is, well, why don't we go on to Indian reservations because they're sovereign land and get our abortions there and kind of putting the onus on indigenous people who already have a very um, troubled history with their reproductive rights in the U.S. government and how we're somehow, you know... Like offloading. We're offloading our problems onto people who already have enough problems because of us. And the thinking is that, like, okay, so these places are in states that are anti-abortion states where abortion is going to be legal and they're adjacent to these Indian reservations, um, which will be outside of the jurisdiction of these states yeah. um, to enforce these anti-abortion uh, statutes. Yes, but it's already almost impossible to get an abortion on those lands. Mm-hmm. So that defeats the purpose. Mm-hmm. So that's something I'm really interested in. Uh, and, I mean, the dorkiest topic that I really want to explore, and I want you to bear with I, me. I, just, the, just, I mean, the bar is high because we just started with John Dumber, but okay. Ah, uh, but oh, that pains me. Um <laughs> Uh, the diversifying of trivia. This is also an idea that came from the really cool producer, Jess Kong. Of, like, we have this kind of monolithic idea of what is worthy trivia to study, but now it's, especially in crossword puzzles, there's more like African-American trivia, more Asian-American trivia, Latino trivia, and what it means for what is now considered worthy things to know compared to if you watch... Like Jeopardy, and they're also trying to do the same thing, but the problem is that those contestants are not answering the questions. They're getting them all wrong. Yeah, there's still a gap between like making the questions like more reflective of different kinds of knowledge and also what uh what the contestants <laughs> know. And so those memes about like uh the questions that people don't go, like what's too short's favorite word, which is well, not a question they would have asked. But those memes are real like they and they're always hilarious and kind of sad but like it tells you a lot about like which knowledge is important and which knowledge isn't yeah which like we'll see like a the whole board is empty except for one category and it's like hbcus (laughs) so that's what i would love to kind of navigate and ask why why can't i mean i know the farmer's almanac 
is not going to tell them about, you know, Clark Atlanta University, but you, you, you could try. <laughs> so, Parker, you were a professor of film before you were a journalist. And, I mean, speaking of, like, the diversifying of trivia, like, a big part of teaching film is now I have this abundance of useless knowledge. <laughs> Such as? I've developed an encyclopedic knowledge of the Oscars, which I've had since I was, like, 11. And oh it's not... God. At no point has it ever done me any good, except for bar trivia. Wait, so tell us some random Oscar trivia. I mean, like, I think James Cromwell, who was nominated for Best Supporting Actor for the movie Babe... That'll do, pig. ...is the tallest nominee for acting. <laughs> but Tim Robbins, who won for Best Supporting Actor for Mystic River... Maybe one day you wake up and you forget what it's like to be human. Maybe then it's okay. ...is the tallest winner. <laughs> um, Let's see, uh, Maggie Smith is the only person to win an Oscar for playing someone who lost an Oscar when she won for Best Supporting Actress for California Suite. I was in a deep depression at the time. What was the best bloody picture? But Kate Blanchett is the only person to win an Oscar for playing a person who won an Oscar when she played Katherine Hepburn in The Aviator. I've been famous, for better or worse, for a long time. Which could be, like, a, deb- a debate could be had that Renee Zellweger playing um, Judy Garland winning Best Best Actress counts. But Judy Garland never won a competitive Oscar. She only won, like, one of those cute <laughs> tiny ones for Wizard of Oz. Um, Quivenzene Wallace, who was nominated for um, Best Actress in... Definitely the shortest, right? Definitely the shortest! <laughs> oh, God. Who was nominated for Best Actress for Beasts of the Southern Wild. All the time, everywhere... Everything's hearts are beating and squirting. But she was like eight, nine years old. She was six. Oh my God. So um, not only is she the youngest person ever to be nominated for Best Actress, she is also the only person born after the year 2000 to be nominated for acting. Oh my God. As of right now. Hmm. They coming though. They coming. I hope so. But yeah, so this is, this is what I can contribute to the Code Switch team. <laughs> All right, well, you're going to have to contribute some more after the break. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. 
Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Gene. Parker. Code Switch. So, Parker, when I posted on Facebook, like, years and years ago, because I was on Facebook, that's how long ago it was, um, that I got a job at NPR, a lot of people I grew up in Philly were like, oh, congratulations on your new job. And then they were like, also, what's NPR, though? Like, what is that? <laughs> so, we were talking about this earlier, but, like, do your parents have any idea what it is that you do? I mean, y- yes and no. I think my grandma asked me, like, what's NPR? Is that a program? Mm -hmm. I I think the closest thing my family will understand is maybe, like, Ricky Smiley or Tom Joyner. (laughs) Once I put one of those references in there, they're like, oh, okay. It's like Tom Joyner, but on your phone or your laptop and not every day. And, And like, you know, wait, wait, don't tell me is coming up next or something. (laughs) Relevant to this point, though, we've talked a lot about audiences on Code Switch in the past, like how tricky it is for us to thread this needle between people who have very different backgrounds, so they have very different, you know, sets of knowledge and very different experiences. Mm-hmm. And I know you used to teach at an HBCU, you used to teach at Morgan State. Go Bears! And you were talking to a lot of, like, very young black folks, probably not also very young because, you know, not traditional students or whatever, too. Yeah. And you're also teaching at Stevenson University, which is a PWI. So you were teaching to mostly white kids. Yeah. So you were, like, code switching between your seminars. I was, yeah. On the same day. But it was the same subject matter. Like, how was that process like how did you sort of do that uh contorting or toggling i mean there's definitely a bit of contorting but it was mainly about finding engagement Mm -hmm. at morgan i do a survey at the beginning of every semester to find out like what everyone's favorite films were and without fail a large portion of the class would list the hood classic paid in full classic so i'd include that in the canon along with like silence of the lambs and witness and do the right thing you know Mm-hmm. And at Stevenson, it was also about the canon and trying to get students to engage. And that would look like me trying to convince them to stay awake during the silent Soviet film Battleship Potemkin by saying, shout out whenever you see the guy who looks like Channing Tatum on the submarine. <laughs> but, like, it wasn't a struggle. You know, like, there was trying to navigate those two different worlds to the best of my ability. But also, I've learned if I keep my enthusiasm up... <laughs> It goes a long way. Mm-hmm. That's so much of being a host that I've learned is, like, yeah. just approaching a conversation like you're going on a date. <laughs> and, like, just be <laughs> as enthusiastic and laugh a little harder than you would normally or, or you know, be more, try to be as, like, witty as you can possibly be. Like, you're the most engaged version of yourself with somebody. Um, and not because you're faking it, but just because, like, you're performing, like, part of the thing you have to do is perform this conversation that people have to listen to. And so, yeah. Not that I'm doing that now. This is all... I'm, I'm actually enthused to be talking to you. Uh, <laughs> this is, well, we're, just, we're both putting our best foot forward. Yes. Mm-hmm. But this is a question I have for you because you've been doing this show for a, a while now. This is six, six years? In May? Six years. Oh, my God. Six years? Yeah, it's been oh, a minute. But, like, does working on Code Switch um, reaffirm something inside of you? Because it is a show about identity and about how the world works. So I'm curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like I have been in grad school for the last six years. Um, Like, you know what I mean? Like, I feel like I've abandoned so many of my priors working on this show. Mm -hmm. After however many hundred shows we've done and how many hundred shows I've hosted and and like the bajillion interviews we've done, I feel like there's just no way you can come out of that 
and just not be changed by it and not like I just have a lot more skepticism towards some things and a lot more like alacrity around a bunch of other things um mm-hmm. and like some of my old stuff which I want to get into some like some of my old ideas are, are things that I like frankly embarrassed by uh just because we talked to so many smart people who started exploding my brain um or heard so mm-hmm. many stories like people's personal stories and they like to some like tiny detail about their experience that was like oh yeah this Okay, so I guess I gotta like, <laughs> I gotta start over with my premises. Ooh, do you have any any examples of that? Yeah, I mean like reparations, right? Mm-hmm. And not just for Black people, right? But like you know, everyone we've exploited. Yeah, I mean that's a long list, right? Um, Oof. like making people whole, right? Like so much of the stuff that we try to do in this country is sort of skirting around it seems like this big question of reparations like it would be like a lot easier to just give people money you know what I mean than, than like doing all these other sort of like fixing at the edges but also I think this is gonna this is like a weird one but like I've become much more like skeptical about like diversity capital like the diversity and like in I'm doing air quotes if y'all can't see me mm-hmm. and like the value of it right not the value of diversity because diversity is important yada 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 but also like we talk about the the power of diversity in these big institutions that we've been talking about for six years now. Um, And it's just like, does it matter if you diversify the White House or a police force or, you know, um, there are probably institutions that it matters a lot more and there are probably institutions that can't be fixed by, like, you put in a bunch of brown people in them, you know? I mean, as we talk about police over the last six years, right? Like, all these police forces that we talk about a lot, like, a lot of them are very black and brown police forces, right? Like, and policing is still janky. So, like, what are we talking about? It's still about, a right? white supremacist institution. <laughs> exactly. Like, it doesn't... And and so, like, like, a lot of the discourse is still... It feels... Especially, I think, during the Obama era, which is, like, we came, we came on, like, towards the very tail end of that. Like, um, there was a lot of belief in, in like, what it meant to have, um, you know, there was a lot of black excellence talk and a lot of... You know what I mean? And I think that stuff is... Like, you can't have an honest conversation about it. I feel like we can't have an honest conversation about this stuff without talking about how extremely qualified all that stuff is, right? And how, like, extremely constrained the things you get out of it are. That's, like, a big thing. Oh, yeah. It's all respectability. Yes. A thousand percent. A thousand percent. Oof. What's something that people still might not know or would be surprised to know about you after having heard your voice and your perspective for so long? I don't I don't know actually it's a really I have to think about that. One secret thing that people never believe me when I talk about but it's true. Uh, and people and I feel like I've told this story before and people are always like wait what? But I we've definitely talked about this on the podcast before but is it, it doesn't line up. So when I was 15, uh I spoke at um abstinence only event that was adjacent to the Republican National Convention uh <laughs> in San Diego. Um yeah. And I almost feel like I'll ruin it with more detail, but I'm going to just leave y'all with that. Wait, no. You, no, it, no, that's all you get. More. That's all it you get. It needs more explanation. That's no, all you, you get, made me, You've made me suffer through John Denver. <laughs> you are going <laughs> to no, expand upon that get. log line. That's all you get. <laughs> See, now, now I'm, I'm unsatisfied, but okay. I do have to ask, because I'm the new kid on the block. Do you have any advice for me? Yeah, I mean, the biggest thing, and you, you, you've you been hosting for a minute, you know what I mean, at the cut and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, yeah. uh, I mean, we were just talking about this, like, just being enthused about the conversations is, like, uh, is not all of it, but it's, like, 40% of whether a conversation works, you know what I mean? And sometimes these conversations are really heavy and hard, um, and it's hard to sort of figure out how to sound enthusiastic about something that's, like, and now we're going to talk about the destruction of people of color. Like, you know what I mean? Um, but 
finding a way to sort of like telegraph your investment in the story um, so other people can come along with you. That's the thing that I have to be conscientious of. You know what I mean? We just got to giggle through discussions of gentrification. <laughs> yes. I mean, one of the things, one of the reasons I'm glad you're here, because you're so weird. Um, but one of the things, <laughs> could stand to be so much weirder than we are. You know what I mean? And like some of these conversations are heavy and they, they just don't need to be like punishing. You know what I'm saying? Like all the time. Oh, for sure. Oh my gosh. I can't wait to get weird with Eugene. Oh, I- <laughs> I want to reciprocate, but actually, I'm actually still reticent about weirdness. But all right, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. I'm going I'm to give myself over to oh you. Oh, my gosh. Do it, do it, do it. I'm glad you're here to go through this kind of, like, regularly mom-blowing experience with me. I'm really excited, too. I think that's the thing I'm looking forward to the most is kind of watching my brain explode yes. on on tape. <laughs> I don't know if we can do that on audio. You got to do it on Instagram, real. Oh, God. All right, y'all. That's our show. Parker, I mean, you know what I mean? You should do the honor of kicking off the credits. Sure. You can follow us on IG and Twitter at NPR Code Switch. I'm on Twitter at Aparkis Farce. Gene is at GD215. If email is your thing, ours is codeswitch at NPR.org. Subscribe to the podcast on NPR1. Or wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a newsletter. You can subscribe to that too. You can find that on npr.org slash newsletters. This episode is produced by Jess Kung. It was edited by Leah Donella and Steve Drummond. Shout out to the rest of the Code Switch Massive. Christina Kala, Karen Grigsby-Bates, Summer Tomad, Alyssa Jong-Perry, Diva Motasham, and Kumari Devarajan. As for me, I'm Gene Demby. I'm B.A. Parker. Be easy, y'all. Hydrate. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.